This time loop thing. How did you get out of it? I simply boosted the circuits and broke free. You came back of your own accord? Well, I... Doctor? No. No, I'm afraid not. Now, obviously, the Time Lords have programmed the TARDIS always to return to Earth. It seems that I'm some kind of a galactic yo-yo. Welcome to Galactic Yo-Yo, the podcast where Doctor Who fans share their unpopular opinions with the world, and I have to deal with them. I'm your host, Molly Marsh. It's been really nice over the last fortnight um, to get, obviously, messages of support about last episode's outro. A couple of emails and tweets and things like that. It's always really nice. Um, So thank you for all of the support that's been flooding in. Uh, You've... You've all been nothing but nice. Um, so, again, yeah, big. I can't thank you enough for that. It's been lovely. Um, this week on the podcast, though, um, I interviewed Max Curtis, um, a writer, critic, tweeter, um, who I met up with a couple of weeks ago um, at Will Shaw's flat again. Um, thanks again to Will for kindly lending out his flat and also for cooking dinner for us both. You can hear Will... Um, cooking away in the background for the duration of uh, our chat uh, so that's good um yeah so max and i max and i had a little chat about monsters in doctor who and also um about his short story still life uh, which big finish just brought out as a subscriber exclusive um so it's great to hear about that and it was great to get to know max um i think that's all the admin there is this week yeah i think so Hope everybody's been having a lovely time in the sun. Um, And yeah, without further ado, here is my conversation with Max Curtis. Yeah, great. If you just hold it a little closer. A little closer, like that? That is so good. Ooh. That is great. Silky smooth voice. Fantastic. This better not make it into the podcast. Well, it's it's on tape, so... um, At this point. Great. So uh, we're in... So I'm here with Max Curtis... In the that is your surname, right? Yep, yep. Great. <laughs> in the uh, kitchen at um, Will Shaw's flat, uh, uh, the place I've recorded a number of podcasts before. Uh, Will is in the room making us dinner. I don't know how I've managed to wrangle this situation, <laughs> but um, this is why you do podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're gonna eat that when we finish talking. But um, yeah, Max, I asked you to be on the podcast just because I, I you kept popping up in my Twitter feed saying. Uh, with great takes, so I thought, well, he's a guy I need on the podcast. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome for the takes. I hope they're hot enough. <laughs> Could you sort of outline for the listeners uh, sort of who you are in the Doctor Who world? Yeah. Um, up until recently, I've been kind of nobody in the Doctor Who world except a sort of Twitterer person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just recently, so as of, I'm not entirely sure when this podcast comes out, but sometime in the month of June. Yeah, uh, uh, this is going to be out on the probably the... In about a fortnight from now. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, you know, up until recently, I haven't really done all that much Doctor Who stuff. I've been almost too scared to put any uh, actual hardline essay takes out or anything like that. Sure. But um, so this month in June, uh, there is a big finished story coming out that I've written. So I, uh, it's essentially two years ago, I applied to the uh, Paul Sprague short trips competition that you might have mm-hmm, seen mm-hmm, around. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't win. And I instead was a runner-up, and they decided to make those stories anyway. So oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, so it was a really cool. good opportunity, and I wrote it when I was just a, a wee lad of uh, 23, and now I'm an ancient, gnarled figure of 25. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and that story comes out It's a, it really soon. It's a Joe Grant and Third Doctor story, emphasis on Joe Grant, called Still Life. 
and it's a subscriber thing. So great. Essentially, if you are one of those people who obsessively collects all those um, Davison, Colin mm -hmm, Baker, mm -hmm. uh, Sebastian McCoy stories from Big Finish, you get this as a sort of free bonus along with the um, the Mags, the Werewolf trilogy that they've got coming out. Cool, cool. Could you give us a sort of um, blurb of the story? Yeah, um, the blurb, I guess, would be that first of all, I wanted to do the very like new series or the very modern thing of taking a new series concept um, or genre of story and applying it to the classics. So right, what I essentially right. did is um, Joe Grant's uh, dad is uh -huh. the sort of pitch. Um, and it's about some very serious stuff that's going on in um, my own personal like family life. Um, that is immediately obvious if you actually listen to the story, but it's essentially Joe Grant's dad um, and being quite ill and sort of right. a very Doctor Who take on that sort of story. Essentially, mm. the the main interesting thing about it for me is that it had to be a third Doctor story, essentially, because I feel like there are no... There are, there are very few eras where you can do a sort of serious story like that, um, but putting it in a position where the Doctor can't actually help because um, his TARDIS is incapacitated mm. um, completely changes um, the way you can tell a story like that. So Yeah, that's really cool. I don't yeah. want to spoil too much, but that's pretty much yeah. it. Yeah, and it's a it's a an, a sort of audio book. Yeah, it's a it's a one of the short trips that yeah. they produce. But it's so, um, uh, so who's going to read it? So it's Stephen Critchlow, who is not like um, a companion or whatever, obviously. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but it he you might have heard him in one of the recent Tenth Doctor audios that they've made. Um, Great. he's been on Red Dwarf. But yeah, but he doesn't. Cool. I've I've listened to a sort of rough edit of it, and it's incredibly done. He, Stephen Critchlow is just like. He brought it to life in a way that it sounds very corny, but he's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also has this really beautiful music by a guy called Rob Harvey, who does some other short trips. And sure. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah, I've spoken to people who've um, written stuff for Big Finish before, whether whether audiobooks or audio plays, and and they say that when you hear that finished version, or or at least a rough cut, it's it's like nothing else. It, you just. Uh, yeah, it's that cliche of they do things with it that you don't expect and. And I think yeah. especially for me because I literally wrote this story almost two years ago now. So hearing it, you know, I've spent the past two years not reading the script, not trying to think about it mm -hmm, too much. Mm -hmm. And then in my brain, I think I thought that it was going to come out a lot worse than it actually did. And so when I heard it, it's like, oh, my God, this is a Doctor Who story. Yeah. And also I've, I've found when I've done that kind of thing that like return to something after a couple of years, you it stops feeling like a product of you. Like, you, I imagine when you heard it, it, it just felt like a story. Maybe it didn't feel like your story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I mean on the one hand, for instance, I would absolutely love to get the chance to write another Doctor Who story. Yeah. On the other hand, I feel like I've listened to this and I'm like, how the hell could I write anything again? I don't know. It's, mm. just sort of, it's, a, mm. it's astonishingly weird to hear something that you're actually happy with because in a way you can't feel like you yeah. could have made it. But I think the distance helps with that. Mm. Um, I can see that, yeah. Like I recorded an album in February, and it, most of the songs on it were songs that I'd written going back to, uh, you know, 2012, 2013, and it had been so long that they didn't feel like my songs anymore. They just felt song felt like songs that existed, and then it did give me that feeling of well, I can never write a song again because what, once you're once you're writing and you're comparing it to the stuff that feels like actual things that exist do you know what i mean it's a it's a it's kind of a a, a tricky one but i think great. especially for this like for still life um i was so focused on making it a joe grant story that yeah. now it doesn't feel like my story it really does sort of feel like hers her story yeah 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 you met katie today right yeah so um will shaw and i were at the bfi for that very fancy screening and i was um, absolutely bowled over by, for one thing, seeing a Doctor Who story like that in HD. I don't own a Blu-ray or anything, so that was incredible. Mm. And then on top of that, um, Katie Manning is incredibly bouncy and just like mercurial. She's amazing. Like she She's was so hilarious the whole time. Um, and like completely unhinged right <laughs> just like you don't know what she's gonna do next it it does sort of make you realize that joe grant isn't really a character it's just katie man yeah it really is yeah it really is just katie and yeah her crazy personality she did tell a, a really fun story about um why pertwee's hair increasingly grows throughout the seasons which was apparently she pointed out to him once that he was getting a bit of a bald spot and so he started to grow his hair out season by season and so I guess by extension, that's why um, Capaldi has yeah, that hair. Yeah, maybe Jenna Coleman pointed out that he was g getting bald. Yeah, 
I mean, the, the bigger the hair, the better, of course. But yeah, obviously, obviously, this is actually a discussion that's happened far too often on the podcast about whether whether the bigger the hair, the better is true or not. Um, yeah, on today's but, yeah. podcast, the unpopular opinion is bigger hair is better. <laughs> I would do that. I'd accept that. Um, how did you... Wow, that was high. How did you get into Doctor Who originally then, uh, Max? Yeah. So um, I am an American. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not mm-hmm. going to say it like that. Please edit that out. I am an American. Are you um, an American or are you an American? Oh, God. Yeah, can, can, can't is the worst part of my accent. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, so I'm originally from Florida, which you didn't know until you walked into this room. No, I thought you were British. I was shocked. I it, put on a perfect, um, you know, facade for yeah, yeah, everyone. Yeah. Um, I, I was saying I do have on my um, Twitter that I'm from Space, Florida, and I thought that was a f- thinly veiled. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. Anyway, um, I, so I originally got into Doctor Who because of my mom, because she was one of those fans in the late 70s, early 80s, I think, in America. She lived in the absolute middle of nowhere, and PBS, the sort of like weird American offshoot of oh, yeah. public television. I've had people talk to me about this before. They have these sort of charity fundraiser telethons, right? To yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. It, they, at this point, they pretty much exist to just play British TV, like Downton Abbey or Sherlock. Um and back in the day, though, in the 80s and whatnot, they used to play Doctor Who at, like, 2 a.m. So she would get, mm. for instance, like, Genesis of the Daleks, episode 6, one week. And then the next week at 2 a.m., it's, you know, um, Death to the Daleks, episode 3, and which is completely out of order. Mm. It made no sense. Um, but she fell in love with it. She had, like, a very early VHS, actually. Um, and she used to record them and watch them. Why um, was she up in the middle of the night? Well, she she used to record them up at like two a.m. because oh, wow. she wouldn't be able okay. to stay up for that. Um, <laughs> so she had like a you know very early prototype VHS, I think. So yeah. anyway, then um, it was very odd to be a fan of Doctor Who at that point. She just kind of forgot mm-hmm. about it. I think mm-hmm. I didn't grow up with it at all. No. Um, and then when I was about twelve um, in two thousand and six, not two thousand five, the yeah. Sci-Fi Channel in America uh, brought back Doctor Who, cool. and I walked into the room one day where she was watching. Um, parting of the ways and mm-hmm. I can remember the exact shot was the Daleks assembling outside the spaceship as they're about to attack Satellite mm-hmm. 5 and I remembered thinking wow this is like this incredible action packed mm-hmm. super mm-hmm. interesting show um, and then it turns out to have a lot more like rubbery bits than you expect when you actually watch it but that's mm-hmm. part of why I fell in love with it I think that it you know, wasn't this super action packed sci-fi adventure but it was actually something a lot richer yeah um but it was the, it was the pull of of something being of of something action packed that actually made you yeah. want to check it out and the then I, and I take it seriously yeah exactly sort of, yeah it's, um so I don't know it maybe another shot um, if that had been on the screen if it had just been Christopher Eccleston yelling at someone I probably wouldn't have watched it but then I end up if it had been Billy Piper in the cafe eating the chips oh yeah maybe that would have put you off for life I probably thought would have thought it was a PBS like murder mystery show at that sure point. yeah um, and so I went back rewatched on a marathon on the Sci-Fi Channel um, all of. Um, Eccleston's first series and then suddenly at the end he turns into David Tennant mm. and I thought this show is going to go downhill what the hell just happened and I'm still here and I'm living in Britain now and that's very strange so part of the effect of that was I guess I was an incredibly isolated fan mm-hmm. for a very mm-hmm. long time pretty much up until today at the BFI screening um, and it's a weird experience growing that's up so great <laughs> it's I mean I've I was a, a very strange person in like middle school and high school in America. What's middle school? Like when you're um, ooh, like like eleven, twelve, thirteen. Um, okay, right. So yeah, awkward teenage years. Yeah. And I was wearing Dalek T-shirts and Tardis T-shirts, and mm-hmm. no one around me had any idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I especially remember around 2008, I started to get into the online stuff. Right. right. Yeah, and I remember reading a spoiler that um, Davros was going to come back. And I remember going to my mom, who's the only other fan I knew, and I went, oh my God, Davros is coming back. Who's Davros? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and then after that, I became one of those awkward kids who, I don't I say one of, I don't know if there's anyone else in the world who's ever done this, but I was in boiling hot Florida wearing a tweed coat once Matt Smith had oh his filming photos God. out. It was incredibly embarrassing, and I still get made fun of that. Oh. Uh, today. And now I'm sharing it with all of you. Christ, no, I can't. It, this, that just makes me think of those filming pictures of um, Capaldi and Paul Mackey in Valencia. Mm. Uh, in, in the like middle of summer, in the roasting heat, and he's wearing a jumper and a 
like woolen coat and you're like dude how are you managing that like so i was just trying to get into that doctor who filming experience you see that was the real intent (laughs) behind it (laughs) but florida is often warmer than spain as well like yeah it's a miserable place to be wearing a hot t-shirt with a dalek on it and a tweed coat oh while you're walking around to class looking like a complete weirdo what do you wear for your uniform when when you when where you live is so hot like uh, in school, we don't have uniforms at high don't school. Have by high school, we don't right. have uniforms. We just, wear just goes in t-shirts. t-shirts and jeans and shorts. Yeah, and, and stuff. tweed coats and anything <laughs> else Doctor Who related. That's really funny. Um, what was I going to ask you next? That, that might be quite a lot of uh, background material that I've just dumped out there. I don't know. No, that's okay. Uh, so you moved to the UK um, about six, seven years ago, right? A yeah, I, I moved here for university and yeah. also so I could get Doctor Who on BBC One. Right, right. Yeah, that's the main reason. That's yeah, 100%. So when you moved here, how did your experience as a Doctor Who fan sort of start to change? Or did it not? I think, at, I don't know if it did at that point. I mean, I think, that's a hard question. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really have any sort of like specific fan community. Like I know our, our friend Will, for instance, had this very close-knit Doctor Who society thing. Um, I But I think... The only thing was that around 2013, my interest was just about waning because the Series 7 run was not really to my tastes. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think, yeah. Will is shaking his head in the corner yeah. over there. Yeah, as a guy who's writing an entire book about Rings of Architect, <laughs> I, I think maybe that was the wrong thing to say in this house. I'm going to get kicked out. <laughs> I, I yeah I I was sort of not as interested in that point like still obviously a fan but that's sort the, of that's the point where my interest waned as well I remember like that's it, that very season it was the only season where I've ever just let weeks pass me by and gone to watch them later on iPlayer it's the mm. only time I've ever ever done that with Doctor Who was series seven yeah. yeah I mean I remember like going to um, a university society event where they played like um, like Cold War or something like that mm-hmm. and just a lot of like laughter in the room and that's deeply for me as well like that's a very Doctor Who fanish thing but having people kind of like laugh at this thing that you enjoy not on your terms you know I can I can laugh mm-hmm. at like mm. Planet of the Daleks or whatever but if someone else is laughing at it because they think it's just garbage it's like it's, not, it's my thing yeah, yeah you're allowed to do that it's like it's like um, you can be as mean as you want to your own parents or siblings yeah but when other people start dissing your parents and siblings you're like hang on that's my job you have to make fun of it out of love yeah exactly yes like that's why i mean that's why something like the curse of fatal death works so well because it's written by a doctor who fan and it jokes about it in the right way whereas there there are other i can't think of any off the top of my head but there are other sketch parodies of doctor who that don't quite work so well because Mm. they're not based on that same premise of of loving the show like the the sort of like comic relief ones where it's yeah they're they're pretty much all very uh, general audience styles of mm. making fun of, doc- mm. of Doctor Who. Like you'll have, um, what's the one with like Peter Capaldi and um, the guy from Fantastic Beasts and it's just kind of very, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Or yeah. Matt Smith meeting Call the Midwives and it's, aha, he's called the Doctor. Mm-hmm. It's just, mm-hmm. it, it's not clever. Bit silly. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, how was it today to be there at the BFI and, uh, and see everybody from Twitter in the same room? Very spooky and also, weird, right? yeah, it's it's really weird to see people's profile pictures, but in the flesh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also being uh, a natural fan, I'm, of course, too shy to actually go up to many people. And yes. Um, yeah. We did actually, our, our um, mutual friend um, just was hanging out with us and he saw across the room Alex McQueen, the guy who plays, oh, yeah. he plays um, the master for huh. Big Finish and he's also on um, The Thick of It, of course. Yeah, yeah. And he wasn't there for the Doctor Who thing. He just happened to be at the BFI bar just for because, some reason. Yeah. Yeah. And our, so our friend went up to him and said hi and took a picture with him and then he immediately left. So <laughs> I don't know if he was... He was like, I've been no- I, I've been noticed by the Doctor Who fans. I'm I think he, I, I genuinely think oh, that, that someone said him. like the, oh. the Doctor Who fans are here and he probably went, oh no, the, everyone who could possibly recognize me is in the room. Sorry, Alex McQueen. God, wow. Yeah. That's cool, though, that he was there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe a different, I could say something different about Planet of the Daleks, apart from a guy who wasn't even in it. Um, <laughs> I've still not seen Planet of the Daleks. No, Will hadn't either when we saw it. Um, mm. It was really... Isn't it amazing to see um, something in that square aspect ratio on the big screen? And in HD. And really surround weird. sound yeah. mixing. Yeah, really strange. It's incredible. And, yeah. like, 
and, and also has like all this new CGI and whatnot. Um, I've never been to any sort of BFI screening or anything of the sort, so doing something like that was a really just incredible opportunity. Um, I'd really recommend if anyone's in the sort of London area to go see one. I, I think, but like I said earlier, I mean, I think what's especially nice is having someone like Katie Manning there, just because she was just like incredible bright light of hilarity. Um, um, cool. Should we move on to unpopular opinions? I feel yeah, like we can. I'm ready for unpopular opinions. Scopo, tro, no, fro, jo, co, fo, to, to. No, bo, ho, sho, co, ro, to, so. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you posit your opinion. Yeah, so um, the background to this was I really wanted to talk about Planet of the Ood specifically, I think, because that's a story I absolutely love. You've already had one early episode on this, and yeah, so Tom I... Tom Webster talked to me about Planet of the Ood. Yeah, yeah, which is a great episode, and I thought... I also want to talk about something a little broader, which is, I think, sort of, first of all, the role of monsters in Doctor Who more generally, and also, more specifically, the fact that, in my opinion, the new series is incredibly timid about bringing back, seriously, um, its own original monsters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Some people would say that... Um recurring monsters are just always bad, wouldn't they? Like, never bring monsters back, because it's just... Uh, that m the monster is. How do I how do I put this? So some people would kind of say that the monster's good the first time, and then you're kind of if you bring a monster back a second time, third time, you're kind of bringing it back for bringing it back's sake. Yeah, like they're only and one use only, and yeah, to bring yeah, it back yeah. is kind of stale. In yeah, that yeah, opinion. yeah. What would you say to those people? Well, some people are wrong, <laughs> and I think. Um, so I have a very particular opinion about this, which mm, is that mm. I'm, I'm not in favor, obviously, of like blanketly just bringing back a ton of monsters in a kind of like Peter Davison second series sort of way mm. where we're just going to dump a bunch of random monsters on people's heads. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm thinking about a, a monster like the Weeping Angels, but which is without a doubt probably the, the most successful of the new series monsters. Mm. And Blink is great, obviously. Time of Angels is also great in my opinion, but lots of people think that it that it sort of overcomplicates the the mm. original idea of the angels. See, I, I actually like everyone always talks about that scene where you can see the angels moving. I actually don't mind that. Maybe that's the unpopular opinion today. Y yeah, yeah, I, I think it like depends. It. I think there are two camps. Some people think that it that it really adds to. They think it's the aliens to Blink's Alien, right? Mm. Some people, but there's, there's another camp of people who think that it, that yeah, that it just overcomplicates it and. Yeah, I think um, Moffat's one of the people who makes the aliens comparison. Is he? Right. Okay. I think that's where, Maybe that that's where I've got that from. But then they come back a third time in yeah. um in the Angels Take Manhattan. And that is garbage. It's yeah, to be honest, I that that was part of when my, my interest waned around series seven, just right, right, with yeah. an episode like that, just because and, and this is actually a perfect example of what I mean, because I'm interested in the ways that original interesting monsters can really add some storytelling potential. So, mm. for instance, Time of Angels, despite its flaws, you can't tell a story like that without the Weeping Angels in a way. Like, they, they add something to the story that no other monster really could. The episode is Definitely. built around you them. You start with the angels, don't you? And then you work out. Yeah, exactly. And, and that story just, it, it needs the Weeping Angels in the same way that, like, say, a River Song story needs River Song. And mm. yet, the thing about Angels Take Manhattan is it, they're there because it's obligatory, because it's the Amy and Rory are leaving episode and Moffat's making one of his big farewells, and so you have to have the angels there. They're like, you know, it's part of the, the checklist of things. And so you don't get any sort of real... I mean, I guess the premise is slightly built around them because the whole uh, conclusion and the solution to the, to the ponds leaving with the time travel element of it is all founded on the angels. To an, yeah, to a certain extent. But what I mean is that, like, you can see another Amy and Rory are leaving story that doesn't rely on the angels and the Statue of Liberty and True. whatnot. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Like, there are, there are different ways to build that episode, whereas I... What you, could, I you could even do a Amy and Rory get trapped in the past story that isn't based on, on the angels. For Couldn't, sure, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And I'm not even necessarily against bringing back the angels in a way like that. I mm -hmm. mean, we mm -hmm. use, like, Dalek stories in that kind of way a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is a way that, especially with something like the angels, which are such a clever monster, you do need to kind of come up with a new bag of tricks yeah. to make... Yeah. 
them worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. in that episode, it just, yeah, it didn't, it didn't quite work. But so that's no. not my example no. of a perfect use of bringing no. back an old mon- or a new monster. Yeah, so what... Yeah, so that's kind of the argument against, but what... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the <laughs> argument for? Yeah. Um, here's a way we can start to add interest for listeners. Sure. Um, we could start by talking about the Jadoon. So Let's do that, yeah. Yeah. So the Jadoon um, are a good example of this. They were just announced as of recording a couple uh-huh. of weeks or months ago. Um, they're the only thing we pretty much know about Series 12. Mm. They'd bring the Jadoon back. And that, I think, was... The, the response to that was really interesting online. You know, I don't know what you saw about it, but... I saw a lot of people going, so? Yeah. A lot of people kind of just vaguely shrugging at it. Right. Um, and it's kind of how I felt about it a bit. Yeah, and um, I think... Um, it's kind of the Uda are a really good example of this. Bring back, sorry, the, <laughs> the, the Jadoon, you mean? The Jadoon, yeah. Um, so yeah, bring back the Jadoon. It's like there's nothing inherently wrong with bringing back the Jadoon. I think part of it is people don't have as much confidence in this like production team to do a story that's worthwhile for them. If you see what mm, I mean. Mm. So for instance, there's a lot of value to doing a new Jadoon story. Mm. You know. For instance, in an age of Black Lives Matter, police brutality, doing a story about rhino alien policemen who the whole point is that they're brutish, they use authority without any sort of like legal backing, you know, like there's there's an interesting Jadoon story to be done in the year of our Lord 2019. But I'm not, you know, I just hope it's someone interesting writing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, if, if yeah, all they do the is the Jadoon have been brought back a number of times before, um, mm. in in a small way, yeah, and they've always kind of just been foot soldiers for something else and window dressing, really. And I, I do worry that they're going to be that. That's what they're going to be. Yeah. Even in Smith and Jones, the mm. story isn't about the Jadoon. Like they're they're the, the cool looking thing, but really the story's about Martha and it's about and the threat isn't even from the Jadoon. Really, it's from um, the plasma vor. Yeah, uh, as it should be. It shouldn't really be about the the silly rhino aliens, but it sh- no. But I think I think they that a new monster, for instance, like the Jadoon, that is successful and popular. Mm. For one thing, like the obvious thing is they're trying to sort of bring back a love of the David Tennant era, yeah, nostalgic yeah. vibe to it, uh-huh. which makes sense because I think for me it's it's less a matter of is the Jadoon episode going to be good and more the state of the show you know, like 14 years on from it being brought back. Mm. I think the reality is that Doctor Who has evolved at this point beyond the classic series and the new series. That distinction doesn't really make that much sense anymore. No, no. And something like this, I think, demonstrates that. Like, if, if you know, you have monsters in the classic series that are brought back after more than 14 years or whatever, mm, mm. but we don't really have this feeling that, like, the new series can be mined in the same way. People would rather bring back the sea devils than they would an original monster like the boneless from the jamie matheson yeah it's b- i think it's because we think of it as new who don't we and we think of it as yeah it's all super fresh but actually like you say when was smith and jones like 12 years ago like yeah M- more than that i think and it's yeah and and these sorts of um stories it's like they aren't new to people in uh-huh, the same way. Uh-huh. They, this is like, peop, you know, people... This is m- stuff from age. people's childhood yeah. now. You know, if you're you like 30, you were 15 or whatever when that aired. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's... Yeah, totally, totally. My math is terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I do see what you mean. Like, yeah, I mean, I was a kid when, when the Jadoon were first out there and now I'm an adult. So there is some nostalgia points to be gained from that. Um yeah. And and is yeah. the, are the Jadoon necessarily the like the first monster that we would want from the past 12, 13 years of Doctor Who? Maybe not, but like there is inherent kind of value I think to that. I mean, at least there's there's no it's it's no worse bring back the Jadoon to me than bringing back the Santarans for the twelfth time, mm, you know. Mm, or mm. like there are plenty of times in the classic series where you bring back the Daleks or the Cybermen or this sort of like top tier stable of monsters, which to me is incredibly stale and that's kind of one of my main points here is that like there needs to be a little more revisiting of these sort of stale um entrenched views about like what is and is not good in doctor who yeah well what was funny was when when we uh in the first few seasons of new who so series one you get uh the daleks back which is which is great and that's a good thing series two you get cybermen and then you see them slowly mm-hmm. making their way down the list. You get Master in Series 3. Series 4 is when they start to go, uh, Sontarans? 
And yeah. it's not until series six that they actually just give up on doing that whole mm. uh, bringing back classic monsters thing. At which point the show has already been out for like six years. Yeah, and yet it still kind of felt like, oh, where was our classic monster this year? Like, what yeah. are they? What are they revamping now? And it's like, well, why do they need to? Like, mm. yeah, yeah. So like, I'm not in favor of that kind of like drive to necessarily bring back, you know, stuff from 45 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I do think though that if you're going to want like you know recurring monsters, something that gets headlines, something to bring, mm. you know, nostalgic mm. viewers in. I don't really see the point of bringing back the Sontarans over something else that is a little more fresh. I mean, well, yeah, because it, because like with the Jadoon, for example, we use those as an example since they're actually coming back. But um, so you and I remember them, um, and older people also remember them. You know, whereas yeah. if you bring a if you brought a Sea Devil back. I mean, we we know them because we're Doctor Who fans, but people our age wouldn't know what a sea devil was. You'd have to rely on the people on much older people know what a sea. So that's only half your market, really, that mm. you're appealing to. Um, I think one of the joys yeah. of being a fan is having that like slightly inaccessible history. Um, you know, something that's like a little out of your own lifespan. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Should we talk about yeah. the ood? Because oh, yeah, that, because yeah. you wanted to talk about um, Planet of the Ood and maybe uh, what they. Uh, uh, what they are emblematic of for you in terms of uh, bringing monsters back and what to do when you bring monsters back. Yeah, so I don't know if you know the story behind why Planet of the Ood exists, but it was um, essentially the impossible planet Satan Pit, Russell T. Davies. Uh, from what I remember, I think he actually basically rewrote it to the point where it's his story more than yeah. it was. Um, I don't think that's been officially said anywhere, but Matt Jones is the only New Who writer never to have been interviewed about their script. Yeah. And yeah, Russell wrote it. You can just tell. You c- it's just one of those things where you, he just it just has his voice all over it. And it, it to, it's really all the better for it. Uh, it feels like a really great RTD script. Um, but in that, he makes that incredibly fatal error of just consigning dozens of Ood to death. And then the doctor sort of says, oh, well, I, I couldn't save them because I was too busy saving this other human. Yeah, which may as well be Russell saying... Oh, well, I couldn't write that story because I was too bi- busy writing this story. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of what the Doctor's doing there. It's like, well, I can't do the slavery sto- story because I'm too busy doing the uh, Satan story. You know, you can't you can't do both mm. those things at once, and the show knows that. But the trouble is it's, it's a bit icky to di- just disregard your slavery story. <laughs> yeah, well, they're a monster that's too big for the episode that yeah. they're actually yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The concept is too interesting, and you can't deal with all the implications mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. such a the small space of, you know, two part, uh, two episodes. Um, but then Planet of the Ood, then he's, you know, consciously revisiting that. And he, I think he commissioned it on the basis of, I made a massive screw up and I want to, rep- you know, rectify this. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think it's really, it's one of the best Doctor Who stories ever. Uh, that's my unpopular opinion today. Um, <laughs> and it, yeah, it, it, one of the things about the Ood that I guess I could start with is the fact that they are incredibly over-signified. So they mean a hell of a lot. You know, in Planet of the Ood and beyond, they are soldiers. They are sort of like scullery maids. They're dinner ladies. They're, um, you know, mine shaft workers. They're all sorts of things. Everything from like a butler to, you know, literal grunts in the army that they're sending out to get Mm. slaughtered, Mm. as they say at the start of the episode. And they, you know, what's interesting to me about this is that they are a perfect sort of unchained metaphor for all of these things. The Ood are, like if you know the the phrase like, Ur fascism, like the kind of like basic primal sense of what fascism is. The Ud are kind of like Ur slavery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're the sort of like representation of, you know, everything and everyone who is, you know, oppressed or downtrodden or silenced. You know, they're this incredibly mm-hmm. powerful and potent metaphor that works precisely because they can be so flexible in different scenes. Yeah, and incredibly they manage that without ever really uh doing anything aesthetically to su- to suggest real life oppressed peoples do you know what i mean like yeah. it's not as if i mean it would be incredibly offensive if they did but it's not as if there's anything in the look to suggest do you know what i mean like yeah yeah well they uh, had that lovecraftian um ood tentacly look yeah which is just so removed from a human thing that I, but i think that's really why it really, really works and they get away with it i mean i suppose the only thing you could link is that they have 
they sort of have music, don't they? And they use music in which to keep themselves going, which is a slavery thing. But yeah, which it's not the same kind of music. It's not like they're singing blues tunes. Like it's no, that would be horrible. It, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. It wouldn't work. Whereas, I think they were wise to, to completely change change the uh, flip the genre you know they do have them in those sort of container crates which to me evokes um you know sort of like human trafficking and mm, whatnot mm, um, true yeah, which is true. another sort of interesting metaphor that they yeah. float along with yeah yeah um but they're yeah they're actually even like look. refugees maybe like yeah um it, it's making me think of um please don't spoil it because I'm, I'm only one episode in but uh russell t davies years and years yeah yeah uh in episode one where they're they're on the refugee camp and mm. they're all living in those shipping containers exactly like the ones that Uda kept in in, in Planet of the Ood. Yeah, they're, they're sort of... The Ood, to me, sort of represent like what happens when a people, like a, you know, a species or a society, mm. kind of gets... You, they get what's called like atomized. You know, they become yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. like individuals. Yeah. They're separated from each other, which is the whole point of, this, of that story. Mm-hmm. And then they're only thought of in the collective as sort of like the masses, like the unruly, mm-hmm. violently rebelling. Um, the the way that I especially read them, and I think not many people have actually read into them this way, is that I kind of see the Ood as drawing on zombie imagery, um, which I think sure. is, once you point it out, is kind of obvious. The way that they get possessed in the satan pit mm-hmm. the way that they become um in planet of the ood first they are red eye then they're rabid mm-hmm. and the way that they're rabid you know if they started eating someone's flesh you wouldn't exactly think that was out of character yeah. for that sort of sc- horrifying squidgy monster also like the another couple of things about like the when donna describes how bad they smell yeah and yeah. also they're all uh, always walking ar- around with their hands out yeah, and also they're very... They have brains in their hands as well. Yeah, they, they do literally yeah. have brains <laughs> in their hands. They're, and they're, they literally are connected via a brain. And what I think is more interesting is their very first scene is consciously about this because the Doctor and Rose meet them and they're saying, we must feed, we mm-hmm. must mm-hmm. feed. And then it gets inverted and it's, we must feed you. As yeah, in, yeah. Not, you know, at first you think that they are going to consume you and then suddenly you realize that the Doctor and Rose are the consumers. Mm. So I think that really that's really interesting. It Touché. plays, yeah, it plays <laughs> with all the sort of like angles about economics and consumption and whatnot that the Ood are very consciously playing on. Yeah, yeah. So we've got two examples there really so far of times that New Who has actually has actually bitten the bullet and brought back its own monsters. So yeah, the, the Ood there and it's really worked. It really works in that story, as you've said. Uh, and Time of Angels really works in it. Less said about Angels Take Manhattan, the better. But for sure. And the, and the first time they're brought back in Time of Angels really, really works for the vast majority of people and certainly for the general audience as well. Um, can we think of any other times where they've brought back an, a new Who monster and, it, and they've nailed it? I mean, I'm not sure well, I can. my other uncontroversial opinion is Boomtown's not that bad. It's pretty good. And uh, the Slovene, oh, yeah, of course. Boomtown. Yeah. yeah, within the same series, they bring back the Slovene, mm. obviously, is a budget-saving mm. thing. And I think, actually, one thing is they massively improved the Slovene by not making them so crude. Because um, my, my um, opinion of them is they the Slovene would actually be a great monster to bring back so long as you make it, say, like, you know, their, their stomachs are rumbling or they're burping or something like that. It's just It's, like, slightly too childish and crude for it to okay. quite work too much for you oh uh, yeah i mean i think the slovene otherwise though are an incredibly interesting commentary on you know politics and especially as lots of people have said um it's all about the iraq war mm-hmm. that first mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. um and the sort of like the way that politicians sort of wear the skins of whatever they need to in a particular moment um, yeah yeah and that is a especially interesting one because the slovene get mentioned quite a bit they were even in um the capaldi era they were essentially just copied by moffat in the harmony shoal stuff and those two christmas specials yeah that, i it guess that is kind of similar. it's essentially yeah. the same monster yeah, yeah so there's clearly something there yeah i guess yeah harmony shoal is like a self-serious version of the slothine isn't it yeah yeah it's the slothine that want to take themselves a little less goofily i guess the the the, the take that russell goes with when he brings this slothine back in Bro- boomtown is well, it isn't really a Sladeen story, it's a Margaret Sladeen story. And you're looking at an individual member of the species more than anything else. Do you know what I mean? Which you're also doing to a certain extent in, say, Planet of the Ood, where, um, you know, on the one hand, the, the Ood are these very, like, complex, um, very, like, 
pluralized multiple kinds of metaphors. You know, mm -hmm. they, they are mm -hmm. multiple kinds of things. Um, like I sort of was saying earlier, they're like a serialization of this like in logic of enslavement in different ways. Yeah, yeah. But then at the same time, it's mostly ultimately the story of two particular Ood. It's Ood Sigma and then it's Halpin who gets turned into an Ood. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is a super fascinating idea that does something new with the monster that justifies bringing them back. Sure. Um, so individualizing it is also a really interesting way that you could possibly bring back some of these monsters. Yeah, I mean, you could even do that with, with a monster like the Jadoon. You know, you do you do an individual Jadoon and their role in... Yeah, Mohawk the Jadoon. Yes. Yeah, I mean, maybe they are doing that, actually, because one of them has the Mohawk. Maybe that is too... To whether it's just because he's the leader or whatever, but he's the coolest one. They're deliberately setting him out from the other Jadoon because there are other Jadoons on set that don't have the Mohawk. Yeah. So, um, yeah, maybe that is what they're doing. And there were the times that they brought New Who monsters back. I guess they bring Cassandra back, but she's not really a monster, is she? Yeah. I'm. I mean, they. Cass yeah. Tim Shaw. T Tim Shaw is the <laughs> excellent counterpoint to my entire argument um, <laughs> <laughs> because that was doing it as like a finale especially was just a very strange way of bringing back a monster it that was too brave it was too brave and really what that is it's not bringing a monster back it's trying to make your monster your entire season arc which is yeah pretty bold and you know to an extent we were just saying we need you need to individualize monsters partially in order to make them more interesting the sort of trick that dalek does mm. uh, with rob sherman mm. but you know, with Tim Shaw, the issue is that he's he is an individual, but he's not an interesting individual. The whole point is that he's window dressing for Jody's first story, wh yeah. where he works pretty effectively. Mm -hmm. But then self-consciously bringing him up as this, you know, I guess I could say toothless monster is um, really like agonized. I mean, that whole story, I, I watched that with um, some of my partner's um, family just because they happened to be in the room at the same time. And it was the Battle Agony. of Ranskor, of course. Yeah, as, um, or as Will called it recently, the Battle of Radio 4 Extra. Um, <laughs> it's, oh, I mean, uh, well, we could just rant about that all day. Yeah, but yeah. I've, got, I've got an hour's podcast on that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you do. Yeah. Um, but then there are monsters around that series in itself. So, like, we could talk about series um, 11. Like, there are monsters in series 11 itself mm. that would be much more worth bringing back I, you know, then like Tim Shaw. So, um, well, my favorite ones were the Thajarians, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which were a slightly odd design in a way. But they, you know, they play on that whole theme of who is voiceless and who has a voice in history, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, who's seen and unseen by literally being bats who yeah, have massive yeah, ears. Yeah. And um, the Thajarians, as you know, they they bring something new to the idea of the monster by mm -hmm, simply mm -hmm. being witnesses. There's so much you can do with a character or with a with a species like that. Yeah. Um, I would, you know, totally be up for, say, a Thajarian story. Probably less another Pating story. That's uh, not much you can do with that. Um, I'm kind of rambling here. But yeah, no, I, I do see what you mean, though. Sometimes it's, <sighs> it's yeah. I think when when you think about the times that new Who monsters have been brought back, and then you and then you put it against the time that times that classic Who monsters have been brought back, and it just hasn't worked. So like, yeah, I'm thinking of particularly the Sontaran two-parter from series four, mm. when as I said earlier, they're just kind of brought back because they're the next one on the list to bring back. Yeah, and does it really do anything new with the Sontarans? Like, no. And also. A lot of the time, it seems at odds. The whole story seems at odds with the Sontarans as an idea. Like they sort of go for the warmongering angle, and th and that's sort of the Sontarans' defining feature. But then this like uh, sat nav element of it just completely jars. It's as if, it's as if that's designed for a, for a totally different script. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it it really doesn't feel like they're essential to the story. In no, which case, no. why bring them back? Yeah, it's like you could have just done that Sontaran two-parter with any new new character or monster and the, then the Satnav thing would have been relevant and it would have worked and been cool but it just doesn't match for me like why would the Sontarans try and you know on the sly gas everybody in their cars like that's not their style at all is it? You might as well just make it like the sea devils and they at some point had Satnav because of deep sea diving or yeah, something like yeah, something that tracks vaguely yeah exactly so I, I think that's one of the occasions where it doesn't work also, series five, when they bring back the Silurians. And the story's yeah. okay, but it is kind of just Doctor Who and the Silurians again, which is fine because the vast majority of your audience are not going to have seen 
filter well, the Sardarians. I've just been watching Planet of the Daleks, uh-huh. which is essentially just the Daleks remade. Yeah, so I can see why these things get done because obviously generations go by and you can use that, those stories again, but it's still not doing anything new with your monster. That also you works know? less effectively in an age when I can just pull up Planet of the Daleks on my phone. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. It, so that's kind of doing something... It's doing something like kind of the opposite to the Santaran one in a way because the Santaran one is putting two ideas together, the uh, the Satnav thing and the Santarans that totally jar with each other, whereas your Silurian one, it's like, yeah, it, they really work for the story because the story's designed for them. It's just not a new story. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and I think I think this whole argument about you know w- whether monsters should be brought back and in my opinion you know that well, uh, i think one of the points about this is that monsters are often not designed with a sense of interiority mm, like mm. the santarans for instance have sort of a one sentence you know backstory slash motivation and sure, that's it sure i think one of the most effective things one of the one of the monsters the the thing that marks out a monster to me as being worth bringing back and yeah. possibly adding storytelling potential is kind of what you know what is their society like what is their culture like mm. what do they add to this sort of universe uh, yeah and the sad thing about it with the with the silurians in particular is that there's so much potential for that mm. and at the end of um at the end of cold blood there's that whole bit about what well in a hundred years they're going to come out again is that what they say or is it a thousand years uh, i think it's like a thousand years a thousand years well let's see that yeah wouldn't that be cool to see like a a future a futuristic story mm. where the silurians are coming back again i'd love to see that because then you you kind of re- it becomes more of a real ethical dilemma as well because you you're kind of unsure like the story could just end with the silurians Mm. cohabiting with humans on Earth. And you know? based on the ethics of the show and the episodes and the monsters themselves, that's absolutely what should happen. That's almost what um, Moffat is kind of responding to that in the Zygon inversion. Or not Moffat, oh Ma- my God. Harness, yeah. I've said this so many times, but th- why was that um, story not done with Silurians? Yeah. It makes so much more sense if you do it with Silurians because you can say, well, they've got a right to this planet because... The metaphor mm. works better, doesn't it? I suppose so. Although they are doing a kind of like slight sort of immigration refugee yeah, I thing. I suppose there. so. Yeah. But yeah. you can do a story like that. I mean, because the the natural endpoint of the Silurians is they do have a natural right to the planet. There has to be some sort of like two planet solution to this. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And it yeah it it doesn't quite work in that sense. I mean, it doesn't work with the Zygons either because they because they have them all in disguise as humans, which right, like people like doesn't work as a metaphor because like you can tell if somebody is from syria you know <laughs> by looking at them you know so that it doesn't and th- and like that's one of the problems is that racists can look at some if racists didn't know who was from syria right then it then it then it would be fine like we'd all be safe right but the point is that you can't tell whether somebody's a zygon so that the metaphor just doesn't work at all right yeah it's it's extremely muddled am i missing something <laughs> i don't know i mean <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've kind of come down on that story a little harder in recent years yeah. than I did on first glance. Just yeah, every time I think about it, it just gets it just gets worse in my head. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I personally love most of P- um, Peter Harness's stuff, mm. but especially nowadays, um, I think it's be- from 2015 to 2019, the doctor giving that really beautifully performed speech about just you know stop doing the war thing okay, doesn't yeah. really work as well like that i think that in a way no. a doctor who has to be a bit more bold Radical. about its politics and its monsters it's than the that opposite direction hasn't it max uh, I, secretly yeah a little <laughs> bit. possibly possibly so <laughs> but yeah if you just put silurians in that story and you have them walking around being silurians it the the, the metaphor is so much more potent right mm. uh, i'm thinking of other classic monsters that that knew who was brought back um they did the Ice Warriors, and so they take, like we discussed earlier, they take a year off from bringing back classic monsters in series six, which I think is wise. Yeah. Um, do they? Well, they have uh, one scene with a Dalek. Yeah, but like as in bringing back classic monsters for the first. Oh no, time. they do have um, the Cybermen in closing time. Yeah, but in terms of, I mean, in terms of like, well, bringing a new one, bringing back. a new one, a new old one. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. that is what I mean. Uh, I'm trying to think whether they do bring back a new old one. I don't think they do. No, I don't think so. Um, but series seven, you have the Ice Warriors. 
which and is to me a like monumentally strange bad decision right, um, to be right. honest like I, I don't i don't really see the value in the ice warriors generally cold war's fine it's all right but the ice warriors are sort of just the Santarans, though aren't they they're the Santarans, but with goofier cgi yeah. and um i don't know I, I i tend to think that doctor who shouldn't really do the martians um that's sort of like what someone would imagine doctor who does without having seen it except it does actually do that the, the lizard monsters from Mars. Yeah, that's, it is kind of jarring that they're from Mars and that that's just a piece of continuity that they can't change now. Yeah, um, for, forever if you want to do a Mars story, you have to do that. Like with the Flood, a monster that should be brought back. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, does Mark Gates do anything new with the Ice Warriors in uh, in Cold War? You see their bodies, which isn't really oh, yeah. new. That, well, I mean, it is new, I mean, but it's, it's not new, like a new thing to do like with them. it's like not thematically interesting. Do you know what I mean? It's not like that's not a metaphor for anything. It's not like no. He d- he gets a lot closer to it in Empress of Mars though, because you get that whole um, imperialism dynamic that I think is maybe mm. a little cliched, but you know, doing Victorian explorers magically end up on Mars yeah, is a great. more unique story I think for sure. A, I think it's a good episode actually, Empress yeah. of Mars. I think it really works. Like um, it's it's not it's not my preferred one, but it's. Way yeah, I I find a lot more interesting for sure than Cold War, which is maybe more technically accomplished, but yeah, and it's funny how it it took it took till the s- till the second time bringing the the monster back to go okay let's let's do a- something actually interesting now, you know if it, it feels like the first time you bring a monster back it's got to be oh this is the one where we're bringing the monster back, and why yeah. why does it have to be that and who is that appealing to exactly like yeah I, yeah you yeah. know you like I think you can criticize bring back the Jadoon for valid reasons. But there are people in 2019 who remember what the Jadoon are exactly, in yeah. a way that no one remembers the Ice Warriors from 1967. Eight. Yeah, a fantastic um, example of, of, of that is um, is Gridlock, where the Macra come back. One of the best episodes ever. Yeah, but, but like that doesn't need to be the Macra. And it's kind of just an in-joke for the fans that it's the Macra. But it really works because it's not a, oh, we're bringing the Macra back story in any way at all and i quite like that and i think maybe that's how they should use old monsters more often but also the macra thematically work perfectly for gridlock because the whole point is that originally there are the sort of unseen manipulators behind the scenes which is what you're expecting in gridlock and then of course it turns out there are no unseen manipulators it's just the sort of system has failed Mm. um and we're living in the wake of that so the macro makes sense thematically as a sort of like reveal that there is no yeah. but sort master. of by accident because it's not as if like bringing the macro back is the weight on the episode's shoulders right like that's something it thematically does just by being a good story yeah it's not the macro story exactly whereas cold war is the ice warriors are coming back story and that's that was the premise from day one right and then it it just becomes about that do you know what i mean there's nothing mm. whereas if if it's a story that is already there and then you go oh, I could put Ice Warriors in this but, and it would make sense because of X, Y, Z. I think that is a better reason to bring bring a monster back, right? So here's here's a question for you, actually. I'm turning the podcast on its side. Oh, Do you wow. think there are any classic monsters around that we should bring back left? Not not for their own sake. Otherwise, I'd be completely going against the, the point I just made. I no mandrel stories? <laughs> I mean, the one I always think of is the Draconians, but I think maybe they're just a bit too racist. Yeah, I, I've said this recently because everyone's been watching Frontier in Space um, in prep for Planet. But the Draconians, I think, were salvageable up until all the spin-off media in the 90s and the mm. 2000s and mm. whatnot really leaned hard into that Japanese influence. Like there's um, an audio called Paper Cuts that's all that has, I haven't even listened to it. So I, maybe it's I'm um, representing it badly, but it's got like origami and it's it's like it has a samurai on the cover which i think was well-meaning and trying to just lean into the real life reference that they're trying to make but the draconians are just they're sort of unsalvageable now they're too tied up in uh, you know japanese culture as a weird stereotype um yeah i think it might be interesting to bring the guardians back maybe the black and white guardian do you think i think I I, i don't know whether you could do anything good with them but you could I think it would work in this landscape of like Marvel Infinity War. Oh, I can see you know what I mean, like the Black Guardian as Thanos. Yeah, yeah, or like Like as the the Infinity Stones sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's a parallel there, I think. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just imagining like Yaz or Ryan being tempted by the Black Guardian, like destroy the Doctor. Yeah, but that would work though, right? And especially that's, that is making me think of Thanos a little bit. Yeah, well, I think there's especially in something like um, a lot of like franchise sci-fi media today, there is that desire to go bigger and bigger and bigger, which yeah. is really hard for Doctor Who at this point when you have the universe ending. You know, sure. at least once a series. I but think that's one of the ways it's not got new. Who hasn't gone anyway is going. Okay, let's let's just introduce some crazy pseudoscience about why the universe exists. Mm. You know, like like in the Marvel universe, the, the Infinity Stones are the the foundation for the, uh, the whole universe, and it's like the pseudoscience that the whole of Marvel, uh, right? Marvel's films are based on. So if you, you could do that with Doctor Who and say, well, these are the gods, they're sort of like gods of Doctor Who land. I also um, prefer when Doctor Who goes a little more fantasy than yeah, sci-fi yeah, in a way. Me too. But I think um, I think what we're we're both sort of leaning into here is that whether it's classic or new monsters, the most interesting thing to do with them is to give them a personality. Yeah, so yeah. I think and I make them relevant as well. Like mm. I said, that's been the Guardians' back, but really, what I'm saying is, oh, let's kind of copy Marvel a bit. Right. Do you know what I mean? So mm. there's a reason there's to bring a reason them back behind nowadays. it nowadays, yeah. and there's. Also, th- I think the Black Guardian would be a great example of this because there's no way you can bring the Black Guardian into, say, Series 12 and not have it be about that in some mm, way. Mm. Whereas if you're bringing back the Sontarans for the 17th time, you know, there's no necessity to them in the same way that there is. Cause yeah, not which I think actually was a good thing Moffat did with both Silurians and Sontarans by making Madame Vastra and Strax. Yeah, by making them characters. characters that these really great actors yeah. can actually bring life to. You're then using the iconography... But then you actually just got characters, you know. Yeah, like which works. the rubber is just supposed to be there as a storytelling mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed mm-hmm. to literally like constrain the actor and not give them anything to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, yeah, it kind of reminded me more of like Star Trek, where you have Vulcan characters. Do you know what I mean? And like Spock mm. is Spock. Spock isn't just a Vulcan. Do you know what I mean? Which I can't even imagine a version of Star Trek where Spock is like a guy in a rubber suit. Well, exactly. Can't talk. Well, you, you d- it's something you don't get very often in, in Doctor Who, though, is in this individ- individualistic stance mm. on, a, on an alien, I suppose. One, one, I mean, that reminds me of one of my favorite ever photos from the show, which is um, Mission to the Unknown and that mm. picture of all the random aliens oh God, assembled so around. Great, yeah. Like, I mean... I I just adore that kind of like 60s style bizarreness to their designs. Mm. I think one is literally just like a guy with some stuff stapled to him. Um, And it's that I think there's a kind of pleasure in seeing that like menagerie of monsters Mm -hmm. that you get Mm -hmm. again in like Stolen Earth and whatnot. Um, And that's the kind of thing that I think, you know, on the the one hand. And Rings of Akaten, actually. Yeah, and Rings of Akaten. On the one hand, (laughs) I do think that there's a, you know, there's there's a bad tendency to bringing back recurring monsters just for the sake of them. Mm-hmm. But there is a kind of impulse that's maybe a fanish one to see something that you do recognize before that generally should be rejected in Doctor Who. You know, you mm-hmm. shouldn't just do mm-hmm. things because, oh, I, I recognize the Daleks. Let's bring them back. Sure. But there is a kind of pleasure in seeing a monster that you loved from like a year or two ago yeah. brought back to the screen. Like having the Jadoon come back and you go, oh, this is like a coherent Doctor Who-ish story in, in like a universe that kind of makes sense, at least for one episode before we throw all that out the window and yeah, do something yeah, yeah. completely fresh. Yeah. I but think, it, I think it does make the yeah. viewers at home like, uh, um, go, yeah, like there are people my age, like friends I have who are not that into Doctor Who, they'll watch it a little bit. But that when they see the Jaduna coming back, I know they'll be like, oh, wow, that's cool. And they won't really know why that's cool, but they'll, they'll be like, oh, that's a Doctor Who thing, you know? I don't think Doctor Who should be afraid of doing Doctor Who stuff. This yeah. is something I'm very, very... Uh, Strong on actually because it it really um, rubbed me up the wrong way during all of the series eleven promotion that it seemed to be going oh no we're not Doctor and it's like no it's fine to be Doctor Who just be good you know like people like Doctor Who Mm. you know people like Doctor Who stuff they like seeing a Dalek they like seeing a Tardis and that stuff's gonna be there so like. It's mm. kind of false advertising if you try and pretend that it's just about a guy in a cafe. You know, like you've got to sort of. I, I think there's also the there's a weird dichotomy bit. people have between fresh and old or ancient mm. that you know doesn't necessarily hold. Because, for instance, we could say you know what's fresh about series eleven is that up until the New Year's special, it doesn't yeah. bring back any classic monsters. Mm. At the same time, though, quite a lot of the storytelling it's doing is quite like older or stale like yeah, yeah, yeah. it does like some very traditional bases under siege yeah 
Whereas you could do something like an older monster or a monster from the Smith or Capaldi years or whatever, and you can bring it back in a way that is fresh mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. justifies doing it. Like definitely, there's just yeah, there's there's doing an old thing in an old way, but then there's also doing something old in a completely new way that reinvigorates things and makes you interrogate the premises of your characters and your monsters. You're so right. You're so right. Yeah. Oh, and the first one to get an unpopular opinion that's a hundred percent right. <laughs> <laughs> I say you're so right to everybody, whether I agree with them or not. I'm a total Philistine. Uh, great. How's the dinner doing, Will? Uh, do you need another hour or something? Do you need another hour? Oh, great. Oh, I'm glad we started in. cooking then. Cause oh, right. Well, we have an hour to talk about Planet of the Daleks. Um, great. <laughs> or Rings of Akaten. I think we might finish there, Max. Yeah. Is that all right with you? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Great. I don't know if I said anything interesting, but... Oh, you said loads of interesting stuff. Um, where can people find you on Twitter? I am at Max C Curtis, which is two C's in a row. Max C Curtis. Um, is no your middle name? Does your middle name begin with a C? Yeah, yeah, it does. What is That's, it? Uh, Carrington. My full name is actually Maximilian Carrington Curtis, which is incredibly Ponzi. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, for Doctor Who, I actually have to be. You a sound like more a print. You sound like a royal baby. I sound like a draconian. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you can find us on Twitter at, as usual, at GalactiaPod. And if you want to send me an email. It's uh, send us an email. Sorry, uh, Rory. Uh, it's galatiopod at gmail.com. Um, and we will see you next time. Well, Max won't, but I will. Yeah, goodbye. Bye bye. <laughs>